Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. Every generation is the me generation. They don't think about the previous generation and say, oh, they had it really hard. They look at the previous generation and say, they were really fucked up and backwards and we're going to do things better and we're going to show them and oh my God, it's so fucking hard and why don't people really pay attention to how hard we're working? We're depressed and I, I think that's part and parcel with the, the nature of the thing. That was Wyatt Cenac. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Uh, before we get into it with Wyatt, I just want to pay my respects to John Singleton and his family. The very talented director passed away over the last week, and it is a tremendous, absolutely tremendous loss in the film industry. You have probably seen Boys in the Hood, but uh, you should also see Higher Learning and Four Brothers, and even his Fast and Furious movie is good. He was a deeply uh, talented craftsman. I think often the conversation around him is about the racial barriers that he broke, which he totally did, and in that way he is unbelievably important. But he was a deeply talented filmmaker, first and foremost, and a true artist. And in my very limited experience, uh, a good, generous, warm, and kind person in this world. It is never easy to lose anyone, but it is... uh, more painful when you lose someone too early. So uh, my respects to John Singleton and his family. I think his legacy will live on not only in his own work, but of all the films and filmmakers he inspired along the way. There are so many uh, men and women of color that saw Boys in the Hood and saw John Singleton and thought, all right, maybe I can do this. And that way he was radical and so deeply important, and it makes his loss even harder. So uh, he will be missed, especially by all the people who make this show. If you have not seen uh, Boys in the Hood, then I can't imagine you're actually someone who listens to this podcast. But if you haven't, please uh, do yourself a favor. It is a beautiful, beautiful movie. And if you have seen that one but want to see something else, 
I love Four Brothers. I think it is a really fun film. It's just an action picture, but it also has these kind of interesting familial ties. And Andre 3000 is in there. It's it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. So uh, rest in peace, John Singleton. And thank you for everything that you did along the way. Anyway, uh, it's very hard to segue into something less serious, but Wyatt Cenac is a really talented and funny comic and writer. He's now the host of this show on HBO called Problem Areas. The second season premiered a couple weeks ago, and uh, let's take a listen to the trailer. If you could remake public education in this country, how would you do it? That's hard. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. That's what I do. (laughs) That's what you do? Yeah. Do you feel like there's more that schools could be doing? Explain it to me. Principal, how do you give kids a fair and equitable education? Smaller class sizes. Sex ed. Goat yoga. That seems dangerous. <laughs> right, okay. When you make a high school curriculum, what's that look like? Just people who can think outside the box. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This is awkward. Uh, I've had a few awkward moments with you already. Really? The best part of this show is that Wyatt and his team get to go long form on one idea. Last year, they spent an entire season on policing, and this year they're spending the entire second season on public education. Now, you may be thinking, isn't this the same Wyatt Snack I saw on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart or in his stand-up shows for Night Train or just his stand-up specials on Netflix and Amazon? It is. It is the exact same uh, sarcastic, deadpan Wyatt Cenac. But he's not trying to be a journalist on problem areas. I think the role that I would give him is something close to an interviewer. Um, You can also just call him a conversationalist. Whatever it is, Wyatt is approaching people from all walks of life uh, in a way that I believe uh, I try to do on this show, which is with humanity, with warmth, and with deep, deep curiosity. So I've been really enjoying the show. I I liked it from the first season. Uh, And in fact, last April, Wyatt and I sat down for New York Magazine in an interview. And I guess this is just a new thing we're going to do. Every April, uh, I'm going to have to call Wyatt Sinek by phone and talk to him about, you know, pretty much everything. This is a wide-ranging conversation And uh, I really hope you seek out Problem Areas. It is on HBO right now. Uh, If you don't have HBO and just want to take a peek, the first episode of the second season is available for free on YouTube. So without further ado, let's call it Wyatt Sinek. It's an act. How are you feeling right now? It's like 7.45 over there. I feel like you've been working all day. Now you're talking to ostensibly a stranger. But not that much of a stranger. We did talk a year ago, and I feel like we had a somewhat existential conversation, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. That's a good memory. Yeah. How has the uh, show treated you in the last year of making it? It's an inanimate object, so it can't really treat me. I forgot that. I forgot that that's how you answer questions. Yeah. It's my favorite part about you. Well, thank you. Uh, Some, some people say it's my, my winning teeth. Um, (laughs) who who says that dentists, right? Because that's where their money comes from. So to answer your question, the show hasn't necessarily been treating me, but how have I been treating myself? I would like to think I've been treating myself okay. You know, when you do a show like this, you have high hopes and big expectations. And I feel like what we're making is pretty close to what myself and Hallie Haglin, my head writer and EP, when we started this, it feels like what we're making is pretty close to what it what it was that we initially set out to do. So when I look at it, I feel pretty content with making the show that we set out to make that we're we're trying to do that. Has the response been what you wanted? 
That's a good question. And it's a question I don't know. I don't know how to answer, honestly. You don't know how to answer it honestly, or you don't know how to answer it? I don't know how to answer it, comma, honestly. (laughs) Okay. I think I used the comma correctly there. I think so. I wanted to make this show, and I'm excited about getting the opportunity to do it. My main response was, okay, can we continue to do this show? We've made the first one. We've made the second one. We've made a whole season. Can we make a second season? That was kind of the first the first response I, I was looking for. Okay, I want to be able to keep doing this, and I want this thing to be something that the, the network appreciates. That's who I'm kind of looking at as far as response. If people outside, you know, walking down the street or on Twitter love the show, if critics love the show, that's all great. But at the end of the day, you could have all the goodwill of all the critics and all the people on the street and all the people on Twitter, but you could still lose your show. It could still get canceled. It could still, you know, there could still be budget reasons that they don't want to continue doing it. And so as much as I appreciate all of those things, I appreciate those, those aren't the things that I'm necessarily chasing. It totally makes sense. I mean, and also um, something I think you hit on that's, that's, I think, uh, not discussed enough uh, online and, and even just in day-to-day life is like, the goodwill is great. But the goodwill does not guarantee any future success or continuation of being able to make something. Yeah. I mean, it helps. It's nice. It's good for ego. Sure. I mean, two things. There's A, there's a graveyard full of television shows that had all the goodwill in the world uh, that, yeah, just don't move on. And so... I think having worked in television and watched enough television as both a, a fan of it and someone who works in it, I'm acutely aware of the idea that goodwill is wonderful, but it, it doesn't it doesn't guarantee that you get to do something. There's the other part of goodwill that it feels like, well, goodwill is is great. And what you were talking about as far as the ego stroking aspect of it, that is all nice, but it's also not something that you should go chasing to find any sense of validation as a human being, because at some point that is going to go away. It ends. Yeah. And I think if that's a drug that you're chasing, the come down from that is going to be fucking brutal. It's a drug and it's 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 not going to feel good when all of a sudden you're not valid anymore. And that's ultimately what fame is. It's validity in the eyes of an anonymous public. Mm. When they are done with you, when they don't see value in you, that ain't a good feeling. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with. And if if you're chasing that feeling, you should chase it knowing that on the other side of it is obscurity and it's the obscurity that comes with age it's the obscurity that comes with time and a lack of relevancy and so yeah that's the other reason where it feels like it's dangerous to go chasing that outside validation and that outside response there's a joke in the first episode of season two uh where you jokingly call yourself an egomaniac look my name is in the title of the show um I watched that today, and I thought, well, it's a good You joke. only watched the show today, Sam. Wyatt, I'm catching up. I was traveling, now I'm catching up. I watched three in one day. I don't know why you said, I don't know why you said it like that, as though you watched three in one day as though it was a chore. It was not a chore. I'm just saying, that's pretty impressive. People spent the week, people watched Avengers, which is three hours and one minute. I'm not saying that you did, but uh, but for you to say... You sat down and you watched an hour and a half of television. And it that was good. Right. But if you're saying that's impressive, I'm just saying that. Oh, I think I should win an award for that. I, 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 I honestly, I, I should get praise for watching three episodes of your very quality television, Joe. The way you're saying it, it sounds <laughs> like an insult 
said, like, you should get an award when there's a 14-year-old who watched three hours and one minute of Avengers Endgame who gets nothing. Right. But whatever satisfaction comes from having seen it without it hopefully having been spoiled for them. But then for you to say to watch three episodes, an hour and a half of my show, that you deserve an award for that. Yeah. That feels as though you're saying it's a slog. Your show's no slog, but I don't want to get away from the thing I want to ask you, which is, uh, and the show is good. Obviously, we wouldn't be talking if I didn't think the show was good. No, no, I'm I'm giving you a hard time, Sam. No, I know. I, I think you need to keep doing that because listeners love when guests give the host a hard time. They Everyone loves a comeuppance. You called yourself an egomaniac jokingly. I did. I did call myself an egomaniac jokingly. Is there any part of you that has chased fame in that way? And the way that you were talking about, because the way you described it felt pointed and uh, as if you had learned from something. I mean, I think I think I say it that way, if anything, just as a constant reminder to myself that, <laughs> that it's a drug. It's, you know, I think if you were to... I think if you were to walk into a room and there's cocaine, I, I think you you might remind yourself, oh yeah, that's cocaine, and right. there are side effects. And so I, I think some of it's that. I mean, I I've made a choice with the career path that I've I've gone down, and it's one that is tied directly to some level of fame. That is sort of woven into the fabric of being a comedian and i knew early and okay this is the thing i am i feel creative in this particular way and it's a way that there is ego that's involved there is ego when you choose to say all right i'm gonna walk into a comedy club filled with people and I'm going to get on stage and have a microphone in a room of anywhere between 200 to 400 people. I think that in this room of people, I am the funniest person. They need to listen to it. Not only do they need to listen to it, they have to pay for it. That's right. Yes. And they have to laugh. And if they don't laugh at the things that I think are funny, then I as a comedian have a decision to make. And I think... Sometimes you see comedians make the decision of, well, I wrote this thing and I thought it was funny and you don't think it's funny. So there's something wrong with you. <laughs> or I wrote this thing and I think it was funny and you don't think it's funny. And now I'm going to get introspective as to why you all didn't think it's funny. And it's going to bring up an insecurity within me that you all are all going to be witness to. And maybe that will be funny. Or maybe that will be awkward and uncomfortable. But but regardless of what it is, you are a witness to this thing that I am putting forth. Sometimes they're a witness, sometimes they're a hostage. Also true. But isn't a hostage just a witness that has to ask to go to the bathroom? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that description, but I, I think that's right. It's I think I read it crocheted on a pillow somewhere. I can't imagine that's true, but... What is true, Raleigh, North Carolina, you're in college, um, you perform at Good Nights. That is your first performance, right? That's, that's where it begins? That is the first place I did stand-up comedy, yes. Do you have any memory? I know this is perhaps hard to think back on. Why? Because I'm old? Is that your way of saying I'm a fucking fossil. ancient? A fossil. Yeah. Yeah, that's my way of saying that. It's hard. It might be hard for you with your with your old man brain to think back to 20 years ago. Yeah. So given given your condition and age, uh, thinking back on this may be difficult. But that moment sure, yeah. where you get on stage for the first time, do you remember that day at all? I remember a lot of it, despite it being 24 years ago. I think I was 19. I remember a fair amount of it because the way that it worked, you had to go to this show before the show and it was like the audition and there were a bunch of comedians there and the person who took me was a comedian named Zach Ward who 
would later go on to open an improv theater in, I think, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he and I went to Good Nights, and there were a couple guys who were running the actual audition process. Uh, one was a guy named Keith, uh, who kind of looked like a, a little bit like Tom Colicchio in my memory. If I was another guy, uh, and Lumpy was a taller guy who, if I had to sort of pick the movie version of Lumpy, uh, I'd, I'd make it Adam McKay. Um, <laughs> but like a younger Adam McKay, like Lumpy was probably in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went up, I did my time. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe Zach didn't take me. Maybe my friend... Look at this. You're jogging. You're jogging loose memories here. Yeah, maybe a friend. Maybe a friend of mine drove me, and yeah, and I'm forgetting her name now. So that's shitty. Did you need uh, someone to go with you? I didn't have a car. Mm. I think I needed a person with a car to take me. Was it my friend Candace? Did she take me? Somebody took me. I'm not going to be able to help you out with this one. You could you could bullshit. If you were a real friend, you could try. Um, that's why you're not part of this story. Uh, so, yeah. So I don't even think I was born yet, actually. Well, all right. That's, you know, let's, I, I was waiting for it. I knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. But I think, I think my friend Candace drove me. Keith, Lumpy, they're there. I do my set, and then they were like, come back. We're going to let you go on stage. There was also a guy named Jersey Dave who was there. And Jersey Dave was another open mic comedian, and he told me, hey, you and me, we're the funniest guys in here. Uh, Blacks and Jews were the funniest people. I was reading a book that said black people and Jewish people are the funniest people. And... I was like, all right, thanks, Jersey Dave. I'm going to go find my friend now. I wonder what book that was. I have no idea. Maybe it was the Talmud. I don't know. (laughs) Um, It was Tyler Perry Presents the Talmud. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, it's, yeah. Tyler Perry's got got a finger everywhere. Um, That sounds terrible, by the way. No, it's like when they say someone has a finger in a, in a lot of pies. Mm, right. You took it somewhere. You took it somewhere else. That's on you. That's on me. I'll take it. That sounds like it could be terrible. That's on me. That's also anything you, any sentence you take could be used for nefarious purposes. I, I think I think that happens often with people. Again, I think that's what happens often with people. Yeah. <laughs> So I think there was a lot of nervousness. I remember my stomach kind of being in knots and definitely feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a thing that I have seen done a lot. And on some level, it felt like if, you ever, if you've ever been skydiving, when the door of the plane opens, you can make this decision. Like I, like I, and I didn't have any sense that like, this would be the career path for me. Mm. It was still possible I could wind up working at Nations Bank. When I look back at it, there is this element of, from a young age, I knew I wanted to be a comedian. And I had this sense that, okay, this is now it. This is me opening the door and jumping out of this airplane I am about to I'm about to take this leap. And so I think there was a sense of, you know, stress, anxiety around that, that this is it. And if you're scared, you can shut the door and you can just land the plane and it'll land in the parking lot of Nations Bank. And there's nothing wrong with going to work at Nations Bank. And I'm sure that version of Wyatt would have you know, a fine and happy life and be living in Charlotte, North Carolina or somewhere because I'm, I'm a big city kid at heart. I, I think that like sliding doors, I think that life 
would have been fine. I'm sure there would have been moments where I would have thought, what if, and maybe I'd have gone and, you know, signed up for a local comedy sports class and tried my hand with it every now and again or something like that. In the same way that every now and again now, I go work at a bank um, and take an accounting course. Oh, what, what, what months of the year do you do that? What months of the year do I go work at a bank? Yeah. I, I don't really like to talk about it. It's just when I feel I got an itch, I got a scratch. Right. And I'm like, yeah. I do have little itches like that, though, where like there's I have bars that I've gone to and bartended at happily for a night or two just to s sort of scratch that itch of, oh, yeah, I, I, I like this. I like making drinks too strong for people. <laughs> I I think at the heart of it though you do strike me as someone who is uh, very curious. Yeah, I I would say that. Yeah. Was that true for you as a kid because I I I want to go back 38 years which I know you can totally recall. Um when you move from New York to Dallas, Texas as a kid. To me it's I I I look at that and think of what you said about jumping out of the airplane and like the door closing behind you in some ways uh, going from New York to Dallas, Texas seems like a radical jump. I know you were only five when that happened, but what do you remember about that move in your life and then becoming part of that city and that culture? It's weird because I think there are definitely things I remember from being very little that were like you're in Texas now, you get cowboy boots, you get a belt with a big buckle and your name stamped on the back of it. That even as a kid, I, 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 I held, they didn't feel like anything other than putting a costume on. By the time I got to Texas, my experience in New York then became very limited. And so it became parts of the summer or other opportunities when we got up to New York. So as I got older, I saw the differences between the two, you know, culturally, it feels very different. And it also felt like something that was always a little bit outside of my reach as a kid, because I couldn't get there as much as I wanted to. Mm. I think I, you know, as a kid thought, well, if I were to run away, I would go live in New York and live with my grandmother and, you know, and I think if my father was still alive and he were in New York, could I theoretically choose to live with him and live in New York and have that experience? And again, think in sliding doors, what version of why it would exist if I'd done that? What do you think growing up and Texas did do like affect and shape your personality. I don't know if I could put a finger on it. I'll give you a moment to snicker because I said put a finger on it. No, I'm not doing that. I'm out on this bit. You're the one who started. It wasn't even a bit. It's something you started. Well, I'm out on whatever I started. I forfeited. All right. Well, I think it did something. And I am the first person to happily shit on Dallas. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I have shit on it on stage. I have shit on it in private company. I've shit on it in public company. It is a part of who I am. And I, when I look at some of who I am creatively and some of my creative interests, but when I think of creative people from Dallas, Wes Anderson, Terrence Nance, musically, you have Erica Badu. But thinking about when I look at like a Wes Anderson movie or looking at some of the things in Random Acts of Flyness. I, I think even if you watch, you know, Oversimplification or Beauty, it starts there with Terrence. I, I, there's something about his work that I remember watching and thinking, and even, even if you go back to what you said about Badu, like on Baduism and there's so 
even Bottle Rocket for Wes Anderson, they're so one of a kind. They're singular, but there is like, I think there are sensibilities that are similar. And that's the thing, like, Terrence asked me to watch the first three episodes of Oversimplification. And like you, I watched three episodes in one day, in one sitting. No one gave me an award for it. I just did it. And you know, so so did I. But I'm not asking for any (laughs) sort of reward or trophies. Look, are you a better person than me? No doubt. I'm not even that's I'm not asking for that. But the point that I'm making, (laughs) I watched three episodes. And I remember after I watched the first one, I looked at him and I said, this is the most Dallas shit I've ever seen really and i couldn't i couldn't contextualize what it was about it and as i talked to him i remember saying something to him about something from my childhood that i remember which was uh this like fish heads song and it was some song that was like and there was a video a music video that went along with it and it was some weird song that was like Fish heads, fish heads, ooey gooey fish heads, fish heads, fish heads, eat them up, yum. This is something that I remember seeing. I think I saw it at Brian Vaughn's house. Uh, but all, all to say, I think there's like this collective weirdness that exists. And I think if you were to look at Wes Anderson's stuff and Erica Badu's stuff and Terrence's stuff and my stuff and other Dallas filmmakers and creative people who I'm not coming to mind right now, I do feel like there is some some unifying threads. I didn't see those things in New York the way that I saw them in Dallas. I didn't see fish heads in New York. Santa Claus versus the Martians was a thing that I remember on KERA every Christmas at like midnight. Those are things that felt like, oh, these are these weird things that are influencing me and potentially influencing other people. There's some stuff, I think, some of the art direction feels like, okay, artistically, this speaks to me in a way that does make me think a little bit about Dallas, like the the pace at which things go. And I think there is some connective tissue between all these things that I, I feel like I'm aware of, but I can't fully articulate. I think you did a pretty good job there. I, I had never heard that um, that unifying theory about Dallas. I, I mean, look, I'm I'm just talking out of the side of my neck right now. I, it's it would be someone going and looking at all the different works of people from Dallas. You know, not necessarily. We don't have to put Walker Texas Ranger into that, or you can. Mike Judge, another person who creatively spent some time in Dallas. I'd be curious if someone looked at different people who have come from Dallas artistically, creatively, if they saw some connection. I have some big picture questions that I asked you uh, some of them last year and you mostly made fun of me. All right. Um, But since we're doing this again, I have some other things I wanted to ask. Do you find yourself to be uh, a calm person? Uh, I don't know. I think that's, I feel like that's a question that's for someone else to answer. I don't know. I feel like, whenever anyone says what they think they are, there's always someone who's sitting right behind them, rolling their eyes. Like, Oof. well, here's something you can answer. Do you, you know, battle with anxiety? Oh, sure. Find a person who's not anxious about things. And I would be curious to meet that person. I feel like everyone has anxieties about something. And I think that's totally healthy. That's, you're like that's a sign that you are alive on some level that you are connected to the world whether it's anxieties about job relationship family health those are if you didn't have those what would you what would you be you would 
you know, I think just be kind of moving through the world and someone could very easily, you know, take your wallet and you'd be like, oh, all right. <laughs> and yet I do find that people are uh, not always interested in engaging with those parts of themselves. Although I always think about, do you think like people are more anxious in 2019 than they were in 1959? Because you hear those things about like, we've never been more depressed. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's true. How do we even gauge that? Go find an 80 year old black person and ask them if they, if they had anxiety in 1959. <laughs> Go find a 75 year old woman who got married straight out of high school to a man that she maybe wasn't that into because she had other aspirations, but the world wasn't ready for her to follow those dreams and ask her if she's never had anxiety or she didn't have anxiety in the late 50s. I like Anxiety has always existed. And I think it is our arrogance as people in this moment to assume that our anxieties are the sort of height of anxiety. And that's, I think, every generation. Every generation is the me generation. They don't think about the previous generation and say, oh, they had it really hard. They look at the previous generation and say, they were really fucked up and backwards, and we're going to do things better, and we're going to show them. And, oh my God, it's so fucking hard, and why don't people really pay attention to how hard we're working. We're depressed. And I, I think that's part and parcel with the the nature of the thing. Slaves, I'm sure they I'm sure they're like, no, we had anxiety. Indentured servants, I'm sure they had anxiety. Like I'm sure there's there's always been anxiety. What's interesting in this moment that we're in right now is it feels like there are two camps and there is one camp that is saying perhaps we should talk about these things and demystify these things mm. and there's a camp that's saying these aren't things you talk about you bottle them up and you don't deal with them um you just have to push through and get over it and when you die you will die with all of those things as the secret you carry to your grave that no one appreciates. But I also wonder like how much of this is cultural uh, traditions and, and what you do and don't talk about. Cause I grew up, uh, my mom is white. My dad is Mexican. One community was, was much more invested in, in talking about feelings than the other. My dad could never get any, emotional response out of his father there was no consideration for feelings it was very much like well we got here and it was hard and then you're here so shut up and be thankful yeah it almost feels that white people have have had the recurring privilege of feelings and emotions and grappling with anxiety i think it depends on the white person though and this is not to take anything away from the many privileges white people have. I think about like Jerry West. Uh -huh. And I remember watching a documentary about Jerry West. His father was one of those types of people who was just like, you don't talk about shit. You don't ever deal with it. You just fucking do. And nothing you'll do will ever make me proud of you. And, at some point, at like the height of Jerry West's basketball playing career, mm -hmm. he was miserable. You hear him talk and it's like, you're depressed, man. You're like, you're really fucking depressed. And I, I don't know. I think like when you hear people talk about like Irish Catholic guilt and all those things, I think there is an access to feelings that maybe the people who have more more means they have access to those things but poor white people are closer to uh their experiences mm. are close are maybe closer to minority experiences 
because I think there are probably a lot more wealthy minorities who still don't have don't have access, whether culturally or whatever, to uh, to some of those things like therapy and, and stuff like that. That's the one thing where I would I would I would say, yeah, I don't know if it's fully if you could paint a broad brush and say all white people have access to their feelings in a way. I just feel like the great con that's been played upon poor white people is that that they're closer to rich white people than they truly are. Mm. I think sometimes when you look at like the sort of racial divide that exists between like poor white people and minorities, they see themselves as somehow being bypassed in line. There's success and like rich white people are successful. And then next in line should be poor white people and then everybody else. And I think it's like, oh, no, poor white people, like rich people don't see you like them. They see you the same way they see us. They don't see you as like as being like in the same class, in the same class as them. You are right. I, I, I'm, I'm going to immediately say that I, I disagree with the thing I said seven minutes ago. <laughs> uh, because uh i can and because you are convincing and i i do forget about that subsect unfortunately um to expand this i i have a feeling that is why um we have the president we have right now i think there's a rich guy who has worked very hard to dress himself i think john mulaney has like a really good joke about you know, Donald Trump looks like what uh, what a hobo thinks a rich guy <laughs> looks like. To me, like Trump is not a rich man. Donald Trump is like what a hobo imagines a rich man to be. <laughs> like Trump was walking around under an underpass and he heard some guy like, oh, as soon as my number comes in, I'm going to put up tall buildings with my name on them. I'll have fine golden hair. And a TV show where I fired Gene Simmons with my children. And Trump was like, that is how I was If you look at Donald Trump, there are enough people in his world that, like, could get him a proper fitting suit. Right, of course. And you look at, like, you look at his shitty fucking children. And, like, they, like, they do have designers, like, who are working for them. His daughter made a shitty clothing brand like they like that tells me that everything he's doing is calculated and it is calculated to appeal to this idea that like oh right the poor white people the ones he doesn't actually care about if i look accessible to them then perhaps i can sell them this false hope that they too could become a rich guy like me He's not just some guy who fell off the back of a pickup truck and bumped his head and was like, you know what I'm going to do? Go bankrupt seven times to become rich. Everything about that is snake oil. And it is snake oil that is being directed at a particular constituency that he's preying on this idea that, right, to some poor whites, I will sell them this idea that, yes, in the ladder of success, it goes rich whites, poor whites, and everybody else because they've, because they've been sold that dream. And so I, I, that's my dime store theory. But I think those things are things that are not just like, okay, well, we have to stop caring about what happens to all brown people and just focus on these poor whites, I think it's like, holistically, what are the things that we're talking about that everybody needs? It's healthcare, it's strengthening of unions, it's access to quality education for everybody, and that it's equal, and that it's not something that's like, only the elites have access to, and it's selling that dream that we're all in this together, and we're all in in need of the same access to healthcare, the same access to education, the same access to goods and services, 
we spend an episode in West Virginia and mm. what is one of the most amazing things to go to West Virginia. One, West Virginia is like 2% uh, or like 98% white. Uh, mm. Like it's, it's, and it's a coal state. Like that's like the thing that has been the backbone of that state. And it's for a long time, it was a union state. The governor of West Virginia is not a person of the people. It's a rich coal baron. And he's the richest man in West Virginia. And West Virginia is poor. Like, there is a lot of poverty in West Virginia. It is being run by the state's richest man. Mm. I went to his hometown and I talked to a coal miner from his hometown who grew up with him, who went to school with him. And he was saying... You see houses that are bombed out. That house caught fire from the inside. And two doors down, another house caught fire from the inside. And across the street, a house caught fire from the inside. And you're just like, oh, shit. Okay, yeah, it's meth. These houses blew up because of meth. And it's three on the same fucking street. You see all that. And talking to this coal miner, he was like, yeah, the governor still has a house here. But it's as high up as you can go. And he basically looks down on this community that didn't always look like this. Mm. That says something weird when it's like, right. And yet people still voted for this guy. They know what this guy is. They know like this is the Hatfield and McCoy state where you had union members losing their lives because of coal barons. They were killed by the actions of coal barons. They were killed in mines by the actions of coal barons. That's why they wanted to unionize. And for all of that, the person that they elected is a coal baron. And so, and the guy looks, and also the guy looks a lot like Trump. He's, he doesn't look <laughs> like Christian Bale. Right. And in a fucking fancy $10,000 suit, he, he is a, a hefty man whose suits don't fit him well. Looks like he probably sweats through most of the summer and maybe the winter. And it's this sort of false thing that gets sold to people. And it's like rich guys selling a false thing, a false idea of success. In the same way that I think you look at like the Kardashians and they sell that same thing to people too. And so that's the weird power of rich people. So one of the earlier pieces you did for The Daily Show... Barack Obama, yes. In that, and, and, and also in looking at this season on education, the thing that is consistent to me, uh, the, the, the stuff that I wrote down is uh, obviously the deadpan and, and satirical humor you're bringing to it. But there is a generosity that you bring to the comedy and to the interviewing and, and letting people speak about subjects they're passionate about. That generosity is is not maybe something that is often discussed or like relayed to you because you're a very funny person, and we spent most of this time uh, making fun of one another. But I will say that that is what has struck me is that you are um, exceedingly generous, and I, I guess I'm wondering, did that happen in your childhood? Did that happen as 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 being a, a kid in Texas, and being someone that went through what you had to go through? It's uh, you know I think it's just one of those things where you you just trying to trying to give people uh, the opportunity to talk, and I I always feel fortunate that someone's willing to sit down and talk to me. And so I think if someone's willing to sit down and talk to me, then I'm appreciative. And so I think that's, to me, the gift that someone is giving me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to listen and, and, I'm, and I'm curious to know what they, what, what they have to offer. So I get to make a show that actually piques my curiosity on a fairly regular basis. And so... That to me is exciting. That to me is is cool to get to do a job where I get to engage in conversations and you know travel a little bit and eat in nice restaurants in different cities. I always hoped a job would be something where going to work 
I was learning things and I don't know why I'm learning them. I don't know, you know, to what end it's not like, not simply like learning how to build this thing. So you can simply build this thing, but just learning things to then perhaps evolve in a different way. If I, you know, if I were to do this job for another 10, 15 years, if I'm lucky, I would hope that at the, at the end of it, I would have learned a bunch of stuff that it would take me into whatever thing I decided to do next. And that it would evolve in that way that everything I've done to this point, I feel like I've gotten to take little bits and bring it into the next thing. And this feels like every all of the things that I sort of learned along the way, like, okay, now I'm bringing them into this new thing. And I'm learning, I'm still learning things. And I'm still to spend a season learning about education, to spend a season learning about policing, to learn about all just the little things that we learn about from episode to episode, just getting to do the interviews, the Interatron interviews that we do. And the Interatron is the little interviews that are in studio where there are experts talking. Um, getting to do those are fascinating to me. I, I, I'm very happy that I get to sort of follow all of these different things that, that pique my interest. Well, I certainly uh, feel like I've learned something about you. I'm glad that the show exists, truly. I really, I, I think you're doing a very good job. And it's not a slog, and people should watch. Thank you. No, I, I feel good, and I appreciate the, I appreciate the nice words. Why, it's an act. It was uh, a joy to have you. It was, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed myself despite everything I said during it. <laughs> uh, until next April when we talk again. Yes. All right. Why it's an act. So long. All right. Take care. Special thanks this week to Amina Sutton and Niles Washington for making today's episode possible. The second season of Wyatt's program called Problem Areas airs every Friday night on HBO. To learn more about the show and Wyatt, you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. You can now stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And lastly, I want to thank uh, Omar Motsafar and Chris Gallagher, uh, both of whom made uh, generous donations to the podcast this week. We are a listener-supported program, and so every person that makes a contribution helps us continue making this show. If you'd like to learn more about how and where to donate, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash donate. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our social media is by Crystal Farmer. Our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next Sunday with Werner Herzog. And now, here's a song to play us out. Have a good week, everyone.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.